Hello? All right, there it is. Good morning. Please make your way back to your seat as quickly as you can politely end the conversation you're in right now. Uh, my name is Nathan. I have the privilege of preaching the word this morning. And I do want to start off just by getting this out of the way. Yes, this is a different pulpit. Okay. I don't want it to be a distraction for anyone throughout the sermon, but yes, this is a different pulpit. And um, this, I think, should be helpful for those who are uh, maybe OCD or we could say um, visually discerning people who noticed that on the other pulpit, one of the boards was flipped the other way so the nail holes didn't all line up. Looking at you, Tanya, and a couple other people that have mentioned that, that that distracted them every week. So this one's all symmetrical and stuff. So if you're distracted, you're going to have to make your excuses elsewhere. <clears throat> so that out of the way, I want to invite you to grab your Bible, open up to the book of Hebrews, and turn to chapter 3, and then would you please stand? <clears throat> we stand because we believe this is the Word of God, that God is actually speaking to us when we read His Word. So we'll be in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. <clears throat> Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and illuminate this passage of Scripture for us. I don't have that ability. I don't have the ability to change a life or a heart or a mind, but you do. So I ask that you come, that you speak your word through me, that you would fix our gaze on Jesus, draw our hearts towards him, Set all our hope on him. Pray that he would be our only boast, our only confidence. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> so real quick as we begin, uh, a pop quiz. Just one question, pass or fail. Pop quiz. What, last week, did Pastor Jason say is your biggest problem? Shout it out. <laughs> Someone just said you. Did you say you? Yeah, I think you did. No, it's sin. It's sin. Sin is 
your biggest problem, sin is my biggest problem. And as professing Christians, we know the right answer to that problem. And Jason uh, preached very clearly that the answer to that problem is Jesus. And specifically, he preached about his high priestly work. But we know that answer is right, but even believing that answer, just knowing it, just believing it at some point in time, that's not enough. We have to keep on believing that the answer to the problem of sin is Jesus. There's this ever-present danger that we will, um, that we'll either lose our hope completely or that we will begin to put our, our hopes in false things and boast in false hopes. There's this danger that we'll lose our confidence in what Jesus has done, that we'll lose our hope that he is going to, in fact, fulfill all of his promises to us. So the danger, once we've believed, is that we won't continue holding fast to Jesus to the end. And so because of this danger in this passage that we just read, verse 6 tells us what the writer of Hebrews is aiming at. And so if you look at verse 6, he says he's, he, he's urging us in this to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And at the beginning of the passage, verse 1, he's telling us that the way to do that is by considering Jesus. And so because of the way that this passage is put together, here's how I've summarized it. Hold fast to your confident hope by fixating on the superiority of your faithful Savior. Hold fast to your confident hope by fixating on the superiority of your faithful Savior. And uh, I'm intentionally substituting the word fixate or fixating for the word consider that's in the, the text because I don't think consider communicates the Greek word in the most effective way, probably just because of the way that we understand the English word consider. When we hear that word consider, our minds are likely to go to the way that we use the word if someone asks us to do something that we are not really sure that we want to do or maybe we're sure that we don't want to do it, like um, if someone says, uh, hey, will you uh, come over and help me move next weekend? I'll consider it. Which really means, I might think about it a little bit, but I've actually already made up my mind that I'm not going to do it. And so that's not the sense of the word here at all. Um, this is not, the, the, the writer of Hebrews isn't saying, yeah, think about Jesus a little bit, but you've already kind of made up your mind about him, so you don't have to think about him too hard. That, that's not the sense at all. The word that's translated consider means to direct the mind towards and reflect on. And in the book of James, that same word is translated as look intently. And I think that that communicates the meaning better for us. The writer of Hebrews wants us to look intently at Jesus and to keep on looking intently at Jesus. And so I've chosen that word fixate because fixate means to focus or concentrate one's gaze or attention intently or obsessively. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying that we need to do, that we need to hold fast to our confident hope by fixating on the superiority of our faithful Savior. And so doing that, by being fixated on Jesus, that's, that's how we hold fast to our confident hope. And we'll look more closely at that in the second part of the message. This is kind of going to be a two-part message. But before we look at that closely, what is the confidence that the writer of Hebrews wants us to hold fast to? What are we, what are we supposed to hope for so much that we would boast in it? Well, first he says, hold fast with confidence in your identity. 
The passage begins, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And sometimes when we read scripture, we just skim over words like holy brothers. Like, oh, that's just kind of a, uh, an introductory kind of thing. Uh, and we just kind of skip them as if they're insignificant. But they're, actually, they're not just throwaway words. They ground us actually in our identity. So if you are a Christian, you are, first of all, holy. And you might think, well, that excludes me, actually, because I'm no saint. Uh, I know myself. I'm certainly not holy. But the same word that's translated as holy here, it comes from the same root as the words. If you look up in chapter 2, verse 11, the words that are translated as sanctifies and sanctified in that verse, it's the same Same word, basically. So let's look at that verse. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So he who sanctifies, that's talking about Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's talking about believers. That's talking about us. And again, it's the same same word. It's translated as holy in chapter 3, verse 1. So 2.11, that could be translated as he who makes holy and those who are made holy all have one source. And so this is the first place that your confidence comes from. And you are a holy person. If you are in Christ, this is is who you are. You're a holy person. And it's not most significantly because of your own personal holiness, but it's because Jesus has made you holy. That's what verse 11 of chapter 2 is saying. And so then we need to know, what does that mean? What does it mean to be made holy? Well, to be holy means to be set apart, to be sanctified. It means to be chosen, set apart by God for service to God. And so this is at the core of your identity as a Christian. You are holy. You're chosen by God for God. And then that other word there is important too because we're addressed as holy brothers. And this means holy brothers and sisters, if you're looking at the ESV translation, you'll see a footnote that indicates that. So this is talking about all Christians, men and women. And, and so this means that, that we are a family. We're brothers and sisters. And there's a lot of comfort in that. But that's actually not the main emphasis here. Because uh, our confidence isn't in one another. Our confidence is that, as verse 6 says, that we are God's house. When it says house there, that means household. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But verse 6, it's talking about the household of God, that we are a family, that we are members of God's household. And it's not because of what we have done or just because we call ourselves that, that we say, well, we're children of God. It's actually because Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. Look again at chapter 2, verse 11. The second half of that verse says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And so this is your confidence in your identity, that your identity is not dependent on you, how you measure up, how you think you measure up, how you feel about yourself. You are chosen by God as his beloved child. You are accepted by Jesus as his brother or sister. This is who you are. So how does that 
help us? How does that confidence in our identity help us? Well, consider Jesus. What happened, if, if you know this, uh, you don't have to shout it out, but, but maybe you know that just before the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted, what, what happened right before that? Jesus was baptized, and then as he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and the Heavenly Father spoke audibly to him. And he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I don't think it's coincidence that this happened right before the temptation of Jesus. It was in this confidence in his identity that, that Jesus fought off every temptation that Satan threw at him. He didn't need to make bread for himself because he knew that his heavenly father who loved him would take care of him. He didn't need to test the father's care for him by throwing himself down off the peak of the temple and seeing if his heavenly father would send angels to rescue him because he was already secure in his father's love. He didn't need to test it. And he didn't need to take earthly glory when Satan offered it to him because he knew that God would raise him up to glory at the perfect time. He fought off these temptations, secure in his identity. And the same is true for you. When you're confident in your identity, you can fight off every temptation that Satan throws at you. And so we are urged to hold fast with confidence in our identity. And then second, the writer of Hebrews urges you to hold fast with hope in your destiny. And we see this as we continue on in verse 1. So he addresses us as holy brothers and sisters, and he says, you who share in a heavenly calling. Now, this is also, uh, our identity is connected to this as well, that, that this has to do with our citizenship, but really it's, it's pointing us towards our destiny, that this is what we've been set apart for. This is what we were brought into the family of God for, is to share in a heavenly calling. John Piper puts it this way. He says, it is a heavenly calling because it comes from heaven, from God, and it is a heavenly calling because it invites us and leads us to heaven, to God. So our hope isn't that we'll have an easy life now. We don't boast about how great things are for us personally or how great things are going in our church. Our boast is in our hope of the resurrection. That is what we're destined for. We are called toward a heavenly destination that we will dwell forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's, that's your citizenship. That's, that's your homeland. That's your country. That's your destiny. And that hope is what enables us to endure through the sorrows and the suffering, the pain of this life, and to do it with hope and with joy and with peace. Because we believe that this isn't the end, that, that this isn't all that there is, that in fact, the very best of this life is as bad as it gets for us. So hold fast with hope in your destiny. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we hold fast with confidence in our identity as God's children and with hope in this heavenly destiny well, again, the writer of Hebrews says that we do that by fixating on the superiority of our faithful Savior, Jesus. And so this is kind of part two of the message. 
<clears throat> and we see this as he goes on in this passage. He, he's going to show us why we should hold fast to Jesus with hope and with confidence. But before we look forward, he actually invites us to look backwards. In verse 1, the very first word is, therefore, which always invites us to look back at what came before. It says, therefore, consider Jesus. Therefore, and, and I think it's, it's really because of all that I've already said in chapters 1 and 2, because of all these things, consider Jesus. And in his commentary on Hebrews, John MacArthur sums this up well. It's kind of just a, a, a brief summary of chap, what's been said about Jesus in chapters 1 and 2. His recovering of man's lost destiny, his humbling himself and becoming our substitute, our author of salvation, our sanctifier, our Satan conqueror, and our sympathizer, all these qualify him for the most serious consideration possible. He is powerful, sympathetic, merciful, faithful, saving, reconciling, protective, helpful, and brotherly. Jesus is qualified for the most serious consideration possible. And so let's fix the eyes of our minds on him. And so the writer of Hebrews has already displayed all these beautiful, amazing facets of who Jesus is. But he's, in this passage, he's displaying three more facets of the beauty of Jesus. Three more aspects of Jesus that invite us and draw us in to be fixated upon him. And so first, fixate on our faithful high priest. Still in verse 1, uh, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And we're going to look at Jesus as our high priest first, even though it comes second in the text, because I'm going to spend the least time on this facet. And the reason I'm going to spend the least time on this facet is not because it's, it's not important or glorious or beautiful, but because Jason preached a really awesome sermon last week uh, about the high priestly work of Jesus and how he deals with our sin. And so if you missed that, I would encourage you to go as soon as possible online and listen to that message. Um, but I don't want to just skip over it altogether either. So I know some of you probably weren't here. Um, and so I just want to remind you, really, of some things that Jason said last week. So as, as high priest, Jesus has dealt with our sin. Sin separates us from God. It makes us enemies of God so that we can't approach him without a sacrifice. We can't approach him without his anger being propitiated. As high priest, Jesus offered himself up as that sacrifice, bearing the punishment that we earn for ourselves by our sin. And as we saw last week, and we see here again in verse 2, Jesus did that faithfully. He is our faithful high priest. He didn't, he didn't shrink back from the suffering. He didn't change his mind. In fact, as he, as he looked towards the, the horror of the cross that he knew was soon coming, as he sweated and prayed in the garden, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He was faithful to do his father's will. He faithfully accomplished the sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing mission 
on which he was sent. He bore the penalty of sin. He broke the power and the pleasure of sin. And he helps us poor sinners even now when we are tempted. He is our faithful high priest. And second, we are invited to fixate on our superior apostle. So as high priest, Jesus represents us to God. As apostle, Jesus represents God to us. He brings God's word to us. Uh, Apostle isn't a word that we usually associate with Jesus. We probably think of the 12 apostles or Paul the apostle. Um, And this is actually the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is directly called an apostle. But apostle simply means sent one. So an apostle is one who has been sent by God to speak on behalf of God. And Jesus himself declared himself to be a sent one. In John 20, 21, he said, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus said, I am a sent one. Even though he doesn't use the word apostle there, but he is an apostle. And so by sending Jesus, God has addressed another problem that our sin creates. Our our sin nature renders us unable to clearly hear from God. But in Jesus, God has spoken to us with utmost clarity. You may remember in chapter 1, verse 2, or you can probably just flip a page and look at it, but it says, after talking about the prophets and how God spoke by them and many times in different ways, he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And Jesus is our superior apostle because he doesn't just speak God's words. He actually is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the superior apostle because he is the full and final revelation of the plan and the mind and the heart of God. And as the superior apostle, Jesus was perfectly faithful. Look at verse 2. It says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So in the next several verses, the writer of Hebrews is comparing and contrasting Moses and Jesus. First, there's a comparison. He compares their faithfulness. Moses was faithful in all God's house. It's there in the second half of verse 2 and again in the beginning of verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house. So Moses was the most exalted Old Testament figure in the Hebrew mind. And it wasn't just that they kind of randomly selected, oh, out of, you know, we like David and we like, uh, we like Abraham, but we're going to focus on Moses. We think Moses is really great. This wasn't something that they just came up with on their own. God himself actually declared the greatness of Moses. And one of the places that he does that is in Numbers 12. So, again, this, this letter that we're studying was written primarily to um, Jewish Believers, those who had grown up, been been steeped in um, the Hebrew scriptures, Hebrew traditions, they um, they revered Moses. The, and the writer of Hebrews knows this, and so he's actually quoting a portion of God's declaration about Moses here, a portion from Numbers twelve. And for us, Moses might not seem all that significant. Like, yeah, he's he's one of those guys from the Old Testament. 
he did a lot, but, you know, we have Jesus, so we don't think much about Moses. But just to grasp the significance of this comparison, because it's a favorable comparison that the writer's making, I want to read Numbers 12, 6 through 8. This is what God declares about Moses. He, that's the Lord, said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. And with him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. And so here's how the writer of Hebrews is making this comparison. He says, you know, you believe that Moses was faithful, that he, that he was honored by God, and you revere Moses. You, you consider Moses often. You think about him a lot. You listen to him. You want the kind of fellowship with God that Moses had. Well, Jesus was faithful, just like Moses. And so that's reason number, run, reason number one that you should set your attention on Jesus because he was faithful, just like Moses was faithful. So that's the comparison. But he doesn't just stop with that comparison uh, because his point is that Jesus is not that Jesus is equal with Moses, but it's actually that Jesus is far superior to Moses. And Moses himself spoke of Jesus. It's there in the second half of verse 5. It says he testified about what Jesus would speak. Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18 a future prophet, one who would speak a future greater word than Moses himself spoke. So Moses was actually pointing forward towards someone that would be more revered, more honored. And Jesus speaks now and in history, not only by his words and and the words of Jesus don't seem to be a major emphasis or focus for the writer of Hebrews. But Jesus speaks by his coming into the world, by his incarnation, he speaks, and by his high priestly work. So what does Jesus speak of by his, by his incarnation and by his life? More than I have time to say, but some of the focuses in Hebrews are that he speaks of God's loving commitment to bring many sons to glory. He speaks of God's solidarity with his people. Jesus took on flesh. He calls us brothers and sisters. The work of Jesus on the cross speaks of God's wrath against sin, but it also speaks of his abounding mercy. Later on in Hebrews, we'll see that the writer actually refers to the blood of Jesus as a way of speaking. He says that the the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Jesus was sent by God to fully reveal God. Jesus said this to uh, Philip and the other disciples. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the superior apostle because he was sent by God to fully reveal the character of God. So when we see Jesus, we see God. And so if you want to know God more, if you want to enjoy God more, fix your mind and your heart on Jesus. And third, we are invited here to fixate on 
the superiority of the faithful son. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So in these verses, the, high, the uh, writer is highlighting two contrasts between Moses and Jesus. So he's demonstrating the superiority of Jesus infinitely above Moses. And this first contrast is that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And we just heard the exalted place of honor to which God raised Moses. But Jesus, this chapter 2 and verse 9 says, has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So Moses was faithful to speak on God's behalf. And you could say that he suffered for the people. He was with them in the wilderness. Uh, he suffered when they turned against him and, and complained. But Moses didn't suffer to the point of death for the people. He didn't offer himself as a sacrifice for the people. He couldn't offer himself as a sacrifice because he himself was a sinner in need of sacrifice. And this isn't true for Jesus, as we'll see soon in chapter 4, verse 15. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who, in every respect, was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So he could offer himself up as a sacrifice for his people. He's worthy of more glory than Moses in that regard. And this reality that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, it's already been stated um, and made plain in a couple of other places in the first two chapters. Here's just a couple in Hebrews chapter 1, again, verse 2. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus has been appointed as the one who will inherit everything, everything. He's the heir of all things. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, speaking of Jesus, it says, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And so Moses was faithful, but Jesus is far superior to Moses. He's the heir of all things. He's the one who's been crowned with glory and honor. And to drive his point home, in verse 3, the writer uses this, this illustration, just kind of from everyday life. He's, if you're asking, well, how much more glory is Jesus worthy of than Moses? Maybe he, he thinks the people he's writing to are going to kind of have a, a chart in their minds of like, how, how much are we talking about? How much, how much more glory is Jesus worthy of? How much more honor? Well, he says, as much as the builder of a house is worthy of more honor than the house itself. And then he expands on that analogy in verse 4 by saying, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And there's a bit of a play on words here because the same Greek word oikos can be used or can be translated and, and really used to mean either house or household. <clears throat> and so verse 3 is clearly just talking about a physical structure, uh, a builder of a house, a builder of a physical structure. But in verse 4, kind of begins the transition to talking about the household of God. 
And that's going to continue to be the meaning in verses 5 and 6. So there's a little play on words here, but it's actually a little challenging to understand the writer's point with verse 4. It seems to just be two statements of truth. For every house is built by someone. Okay, that makes sense. We know that houses don't just appear out of nowhere. But the builder of all things is God. Another true statement. The builder of all things is God. He's the creator. Um, but determining exactly why he, he brings these two truths to light here isn't totally clear. But the, the point of verse 4 seems to be simply to deepen the illustration in the second half of verse 3. So I think he's saying, in other words, that just as God is infinitely above his creation, that he, as, as the creator, has made all things, he's infinitely above his creation in honor, and in the same measure, Jesus is infinitely above Moses in honor. So if you're on that chart, if you're looking to see how much more honor is Jesus worthy of, well, it's infinitely more. As much as God is worthy above, of honor above his creation. And so to sum all this up, the contrast again is between faithful Moses. He was faithful. He was the greatest Old Testament figure. He's hugely significant in the minds of the original readers of this letter. And contrasted with the faithful Jesus. The final and decisive word from God who is, in fact, the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Jesus who having made purification for sins, has been raised by God to a place of honor infinitely above Moses, to such a place of honor that Jesus actually sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so Jesus, in his humanity, is seated right now at God's right hand, which is the highest place of authority in all creation. And Jesus is worthy of all honor and glory. And the second contrast is that Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. He's talking about Jesus. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Moses was faithful as part of God's household, but he wasn't over it. He didn't rule it. He was faithful as a servant. And when we think of servant, we think of a lowly position. But remember, we just, we just read about the, the exalted position of Moses. That he, he saw God, he spoke with God face to face. And in fact, the word translated servant here isn't doulos. That's the Greek word that's frequently translated as servant in the New Testament. That word can actually be translated as slave. It is talking about a a very low position. But because the writer here, he's not focusing on the lowliness of Moses. He's actually focusing and accentuating the place of honor that Moses held within the household of God, even as a servant. And so instead of uh, doulos, the writer uses the word therapon. And this is the only place it's used in in the New Testament, but... Outside of the New Testament, in other Greek literature, um, that word therapon refers to a servant who is held in high honor, even a place of nobility within a household, but still under the one who appointed him. 
And so Moses was given great honor and authority by God. He was given this extremely privileged position. He's the sole person by whom God spoke. He's a servant. And you might think of, depending on who you are, you might think of the butler from Downton Abbey. Some of you would never think of the butler from Downton Abbey. But you might think of him, if you're familiar with Downton Abbey, because he's, he's a servant, but he had a lot of authority in the household, right? He, he demands respect from the other servants. He has a lot of leeway to make decisions. And yet, at the end of the day, he's still just a servant. He's not inheriting Downton Abbey. He's not due to receive some great fortune. He's still just a servant. And so, like that, Moses was a highly privileged servant, but just a servant. But Jesus is the heir. He's over the house. He's the one to whom the entire household has been given as an inheritance. He's the faithful son. He's worthy of all honor and glory and submission and love. And that brings us then to verse 6, which is back where we started. Our confidence and the hope in which we boast. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And our confidence and our boasting is that we partake of the glory of the faithful son along with him. We still wait to receive the inheritance, yes. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit that guarantee that we will receive the inheritance. But we are, right now, truly part of God's household. We are members of God's household. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. This is our confidence. This is our boasting. This is our hope. But in verse 6, there's a, a warning embedded there, right? He says, this is true of us only if we hold fast to this confidence, only if we continue to trust in Jesus alone. The, the Jewish people, the Jewish believers who were receiving this letter, it appears that they were being tempted to turn away from Jesus and to turn back to putting their confidence in their relationship to Moses and their, their obedience to the law. And so the writer wants to make it clear that Jesus is far superior to Moses, so much superior to Moses that if they lose their confidence in Jesus, it means they have no place in God's family. And I doubt that many or probably any of us in the room are being tempted to put our faith in Moses or in the laws, the rituals of the Old Testament. But we are tempted to put our confidence and our hope in other things. So where is your confidence? I mean, really, it, we all know that the, the right answer is Jesus. We put our confidence in Jesus. But like in life, in real time, when you are depressed or frightened, or discouraged, angry, when you're just worn out by the brokenness and evil in the world, where do you turn instinctively? What's your, what's your reflex? Where do you instinctively fixate? Do you fixate on the problem? Or do you try to actually avoid the problem, avoid reality by just daydreaming about some 
ideal future when your life is going to be all perfect and great? Or do you daydream about how your life could have been better if so-and-so were never in it? Do you bolster up your hope by checking on how your investments are doing? That's been your habit. That's probably been betrayed as a false hope lately. Those investments probably aren't doing so good. Do you put your confidence in your status at work or your status in your family? What would our lives look like if we were fixated on Jesus? What if our mental reflexes were just to think on his faithfulness? What if our minds were so fixed on the hope of the resurrection that that anxiety and fear and despair just couldn't get a foothold in our lives? What if we had zero confidence that anything in this world is permanent, but we had absolute, complete confidence that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and confidence not only that he's the same, but that he is reigning over our lives in such a way that everything, everything must work together for our eternal joy. What if we had this kind of confidence? What if that was our reflex? What if that's where we fixated? Just imagine your life if that were true for you. Because the Christian life, it's not easy. It's not a sorrow-free life. We were never promised that. In fact, we were promised that it wouldn't be. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. But that's only one side of it. The Christian life is meant to be joy-filled. It is meant to be hopeful. It is meant to be a life with peace. That's what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to have this kind of hope. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have peace. And he actually wants that for you more than you want it for yourself. He died to purchase that for you. And so fix your mind on him. Set all your hope on him. Put all your confidence in him. And this morning, if you are a believer, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. But I want to remind you as we prepare to come that communion every week is, again, fixating upon Jesus. It's fixing our minds and our hearts upon Christ. It's coming again and saying, far be it from me to boast in anything but in the cross of Christ. Far be it for me to put my hope and confidence in anything but the promises of Jesus and all that he purchased for me by his shed blood on the cross. It's an opportunity again for us to say what we sang earlier, that we can confidently come to the throne of God, knowing that for us it's a throne of grace because we come through the shed blood of Jesus. And so, if you are a believer, if your hope is in Christ alone, and if you've had that testimony affirmed in a church through baptism, then 
Um, I'm going to invite you to come in just a moment after I pray and take uh, the communion elements. You'll exit to your left. You'll come up to the front. There are gluten-free elements over here. And then go back around to the other side of the aisle and enter that way. Um, And you can take communion there with your family. You can take it by yourself. But I want to encourage you to fix your mind and your heart on the glory of Jesus, all that he's done, on this incredible truth that we confidently come to God through the blood of Jesus. It's a glorious truth. If you are not, um, however, believing in Christ, then please don't come and take communion. But if you'd like to talk with me or Jason, will be available. If any, any Christian here would love to talk with you about what it means to put your hope in Jesus, to have peace in him. If you need prayer for anything, I'll be down here in the front and would love to pray with you. Uh, After I pray for us, for those who should, you may come. Lord God, we, we put no hope in anything but Jesus. May we not boast except in his cross. We thank you that you have brought us into your family. You have called us. You've chosen us. You embrace us with your love, not because of anything that we do or what we will do, but because of what Jesus has done. So we pray that you will give us great peace, that we would would gladly boast in our hope, that we would gladly boast in Jesus. Make us bold for him, and we pray that you'd use this time to strengthen us in our hope and in our joy. To the glory of Jesus, amen.